Honor. An empowered promise from God that can be claimed in the afterlife. It assures one of what he will receive from God because his oath and covenant establishes expectations. To honor is to glorify God in word and action. Hope. Something far greater, more profound, more strongly felt, more firmly based than just expectancy from vague desire. Hope involves unshakable faith or confidence. Hope comes from many revelations and the spirit of prophecy and is based upon witnesses coming from beyond the veil to confirm the expectations. It causes faith which is unshakable. It is hope which is powerful, controlling, and causes a thing to come to pass because it is now their right to receive the thing promised. God has conferred that right upon them. Hope is more than a wish, as it requires one to secure a promise from God. It requires one to be at rest, secure in the knowledge the Lord has promised a glorious resurrection. Hope is waiting for the time of the Lord's promise to be fulfilled. Hope describes the state of mind of the recipient during the time interval after the promise, but before its realization. Hope involves unshakable faith or confidence. It is a concrete assurance based upon a promise or covenant. Hope comes from knowing the Lord has promised one something. As sure as God's word cannot fail, one's hope is secure in him. But men and women only obtain that hope from him by getting him to make a promise to them. Host, hosts. Heavenly beings who surround the throne of God. These are most correctly understood as members of the family of God the Father. House of God There is a need to set in order the house of God, TNC 83, paragraph 4, which can only be accomplished through a temple where that work can be performed. The temple is not the house of God needing to be set in order. But a temple is required to accomplish the work for God's house, or family, to be set in order. As once described by God, organize yourselves, prepare every needful thing, and establish a house, even a house of prayer, a house of fasting, a house of faith, a house of learning, a house of glory, a house of order, a house of God, that your incomings may be in the name of the Lord, that your outgoings may be in the name of the Lord, that all your salutations may be in the name of the Lord with uplifted hands unto the Most High. TNC 86, paragraph 29. House of Israel the descendants of Jacob who have an active covenant with God, which excludes those descendants of Jacob who have abandoned the faith, broken the covenant, and gone off to serve false gods. House of Order God's house is a house of order, but that does not mean what many people think it means. God follows patterns. He establishes and ordains things according to one pattern and then takes them down again according to another. He does not vary. How great things! The discussion should not be about what great things the Lord has done, but how great things the Lord has done. This is the terminology that is found in the Book of Mormon. What doesn't matter anywhere near as much as how? What is essentially an exercise in voyeurism? 
How is an exercise in what one needs to do and how one comes about linking to and participating in what ultimately is the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ? The archaic expression, how great things, is found in the King James Bible six times, as in Mark 5 verse 19 King James Version. And tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee. In modern English, of course, we expect, what great things, which is how Joseph Smith edited the title page for the 1837 edition. He made a similar change a little later. Unlike the change in the title page, Joseph directly marked this particular change in the printer's manuscript. In his later editing for the 1837 edition, Joseph discontinued making this change, thus leaving the remaining six occurrences of how great things unchanged in the text of the Book of Mormon. See 2 Nephi 1, paragraph 1, Mosiah 11, paragraph 26, Alma 29, paragraph 20, Ether 1, paragraph 19, and twice in Ether 3, paragraph 8. Humility Voluntary submission to the control or power of God, or, in other words, obedience. Children are by nature more humble than adults. They not only do not have a good working knowledge of practical skills, they are keenly aware of their own ignorance. As a result, children are inquisitive and eager to be taught. They not only don't know, they know they don't know and want to be given the chance to learn. They seek and ask and knock. Children do, by nature, just as Christ bids all to do. One is not teachable without humility. Humility and the capacity to accept new truth are directly related. Humbling oneself is not just an expression to wear on one's countenance. Rather, it is opening one's heart up to higher things. Can you accept truth if it is taught to you? Even if it contradicts your traditions? Even if it alienates you from family, friends, comfortable social associations, your neighbors? Matthew 9, paragraph 24. See also the glossary entry, Meekness. Idol. Anything that separates mankind from the Lamb of God. Cast it aside and come to Him. Why we have idols between us and the Lord is as different as one person is from another. Almost without exception, it comes as a result of a false tradition handed down. False traditions are based on each person's life experiences. No matter what they are or how they were acquired, whatever separates Christ from you must be set aside. Come to him because only he can save you. If you love me. Christ's words, if you love me, keep my commandments, appear several times in the Gospel of John. The words could be better translated to mean, if you love me, act as a sentinel or guard, ready to receive further instructions from me. The current King James translation was based on the recognition that the canon of Scripture had closed and Revelation had ended. Therefore, they took those things into account as they rendered their translation. But recent revelation indicates that the canon of Scripture is not close. God is sending further instructions, and man must stand ready to receive it. See TNC 156-174.
See also the glossary entry, Commandment. Ignorance Many prefer ignorance to light. They will not draw toward the light when it is revealed to them, and therefore cannot comprehend what the Lord is teaching. It makes no sense to them, for light is required in order to comprehend light. A person must be willing to increase in light, or he will be left in darkness and unable to apprehend any of what saves him. It remains a mystery. The way to darkness is broad and easy. It requires no effort. It welcomes one. It tempts mankind with its ease. It is popular, as there are many who go in thereat. Truth challenges. It requires change. It informs all of their faults and mistakes. It is difficult. Man is called to rise above what the world is doing, what the world is saying, and what the world accepts as good and true. This tendency to want to be popular can twist a person away from truth quicker than any other corrupting influence here. This is why Nephi cautioned about the Latter-day churches that crave popularity and acceptance, 1 Nephi 7, paragraph 5. There will only be a few who find it. Even in the day in which we live, the measure will always be few. Not in a relative sense, but in an absolute sense. Few. Period. Only a small number. Another person's ignorance can never define one's own faith. Some people are unwilling to study their faith, even though they claim to practice it. If the restoration is truly of God, then it is important enough to warrant the closest of study. When any matter is studied with great care, issues will surface. Quandaries will arise. There will be gaps, problems, and failings. Human weaknesses will be exposed. Some things will get quite messy. The underlying truth, however, deserves a fair and full hearing. Study of the restoration which goes only far enough to discover the quandaries has not proceeded far enough. One should search into it deeply enough, prayerfully enough, and searchingly enough to find the answers. When one person has sought deeply and another has not, there is a gap between the understanding of the two which makes it problematic to have a common understanding. The one in possession of less is really not in a position to correctly judge the one in possession of more. Oddly, however, the one who has less is altogether more likely to judge the one with more, while the one with more is equipped to look more kindly upon the other. After all, the one with more has struggled from the lesser position. Only fools judge the matter before they hear it. Such souls warrant one's kindly efforts to persuade, not their censure or condemnation. All carry foolishness, learning year by year, struggling to overcome the many things they've neglected in their study, prayers, and contemplation. God does not grade on a curve. Therefore, when anyone begins to think he's outshone his fellow man, he should reflect again on Moses' reaction to seeing the man of holiness. Now for this cause I know man is nothing, which thing I never had supposed. Genesis 1, paragraph 2. No one has anything to boast of, even if he knows more than his fellow man. All know less than he who is more intelligent than them all. Abraham 5, paragraph 4. 
Whenever I contemplate the gulf between he who is holiness and myself, and the great charity required from him to condescend for me, I can hardly bear the thought of feeling triumph because of the ignorance of my fellow saints. How unkind! How foolish! How uncharitable! More than that, how very unlike the Lord whom we all claim to serve! See also the glossary entry, Stiff-Nakedness. Image of God This includes the companionship between the sexes. Adam and Eve became in the image of God. This is at the core of redemption, the core of the work of God. This is what it means for God to complete His work and to have the continuation of the seeds. Iniquity Working at cross-purposes to God's work underway in a dispensation. Iniquity may not involve violating a direct commandment. There is no record of Abraham issuing any commandments, but he was called of God and blessed, and therefore, anyone who worked at cross-purposes, such as taking his wife from him, as happened on two occasions, was committing iniquity. God's work varies between dispensations, so the actions which constitute iniquity also vary between dispensations. In the current dispensation, God is working to bring about a people of one heart and one mind, with no poor among them, Zion. So those who oppose equality and favor inequity commit iniquity. Iniquity is iniquity. These are two spellings of the same English word. Sin and iniquity overlap. However, there are times when a sin is not iniquity, when Christ's disciples plucked and ate wheat on the Sabbath, or when David's warriors ate the showbread that only the priests were to eat, neither of these sins were iniquity. There are also occasions when iniquity is not sin. When the people who heard Joseph preach failed to respond and accept his role as a messenger sent by God, there was no sin in that, but there was iniquity. Christ was denounced as a sinner because he violated the commandments repeatedly and openly. His explanation was not that he wasn't a sinner, but that the law was based on a higher set of principles that were more important than the law itself. And if the observant soul could see the higher principles, then they were to be preferred and followed. His Sermon on the Mount was an extensive exposition on the higher principles underlying the commandments. They were more important, so much so, that if one followed the commandments all his life but failed to notice the underlying principles, then he was truly ungodly and failed to understand the reason God provided the law to Moses. When confronted about his sins, Christ did not really deny sinning. He instead posed questions about the rigorous focus on the law to the exclusion of the underlying principle. In the case of his disciples plucking wheat and eating on the Sabbath, he did not reject the idea that it violated the law, but instead took an example from history to show that the life of man is more important. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Paul wanted everyone to know that the lamb was without blemish because he was sin-free. But the only reason Christ was sin-free was not because he kept the law. He did not. It was because Christ saw something higher to be followed, and he followed and taught that higher set of principles, principles which bring about godliness, even holiness. 
Because he practiced holiness as a matter of principle, he was not merely ceremonially clean, which, by the way, he failed to accomplish, but he was, instead, actually clean. He was holy indeed, without the need of seeking holiness through the ceremonies of the law of Moses. To the extent that it did not involve a violation of higher principles, Christ also kept the law and observed the Mosaic ordinances. More importantly, and much more importantly, he fulfilled the law of Moses. He was the Paschal Lamb. He was the sacrifice for sin. The only way he qualified was because his life reflected consistently the higher principles upon which the law was based. Had he failed to live consistent with those higher principles, he could not have qualified to fulfill the law. He did not deny he sinned. Paul did that. But his sins were meaningless because his path followed everything commanded by the Father. What the Father said to him in his dispensation was what he did. Therefore, he was entirely justified and sanctified, albeit an offender of the law of Moses. Therefore, he was without iniquity. Intelligence, Intelligences The glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth, TNC 93, paragraph 11. And Christ ministered unto the brother of Jared even as he ministered unto the Nephites, and all this that this man might know that he was God, because of the many great works which the Lord had showed unto him, Ether 1, paragraph 14. This is the definition of the glory of God. This is the definition of light and truth, to know these things about God. Whatever principle of intelligence we attain unto in this life, it will rise with us in the resurrection. And if a person gains more knowledge and intelligence in this life through his diligence and obedience than another, he will have so much the advantage in the world to come. There is a law, irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundations of the world, upon which all blessings are predicated, and when we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. How can mankind gain intelligence? How does one gain knowledge? By diligence and obedience. The Lord speaks to man to cause him to act. Hearing the Lord's word without giving it heed, diligence, and obedience yields nothing. God's glory can be described as either intelligence or light and truth. This glory, light and truth, or intelligence is co-equal with God himself. Intelligence, or the light of truth, was not created or made, neither indeed can be. TNC 93, paragraph 10. It is a part of God himself. He and it are one. By extension, therefore, mankind is also one with him. Joseph does not leave the matter there. He goes on to equate mankind with this same material, this same co-eternal light and truth. Man was also in the beginning with God. Intelligence, or the light of truth, was not created or made, neither indeed can be. At its core, mankind is part of God. All exist because they are made of the same material from which God's glory, God's intelligence, or God's light and truth are comprised. Joseph's translation of the book of Abraham moved from the singular intelligence to the plural in a description of premortal mankind. 
Now the Lord had shown unto me, Abraham, the intelligences that were organized before the world was. And among all these there were many of the noble and great ones. And God saw these souls that they were good, and he stood in the midst of them, and he said, These I will make my rulers. For he stood among those that were spirits, and he saw that they were good. And he said unto me, Abraham, thou art one of them. Thou wast chosen before thou wast born, Abraham 6, paragraph 1. When organized into separate personalities, the intelligence changed from the singular to the plural. With this change came creation or organization, and as a result, mankind came into being. Joseph further revealed that in order to exist, mankind had to have the freedom to choose. Without that freedom, they would not exist at all. They would still be singular, uncreated, and without an existence. All truth is independent in that sphere in which God has placed it to act for itself, as all intelligence also. Otherwise, there is no existence. TNC 93, paragraph 10. There is no existence unless man is free and able to choose for himself. His existence flows from God's intelligence. He was created from it. But to exist, he must be independent from God. 